It's a pleasure to be back with you here this morning. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, 22 through 27. And so please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 15, 22 through 27. Listen to the word of God. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians." For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Do you want to be forgiven? Of all your sins. Would you like to be freed from judgment and eternal punishment? Do you want to be the person you were made to be, a child of God? Would you like, do you want to be happy and blessed? My guess is that. All of you would answer, yes, of course. Yet the reality is that many people who want such things, God's love and grace and heaven, never get it. Why is that? Because they're misinformed how. We live in a world with the assumption that anything worthwhile must be acquired at once. We assume that if anything can be done at all, it must be done quickly and efficiently. After all, we're used to anything we order online to arrive at our homes and our doorsteps in two days. Our attention spans are limited to 30-second commercials. And our sense of reality has been flattened to 280 characters in a tweet. So it's common when people hear the gospel, the message of Christianity, that they are elated, they are eager to get onto this highway of heaven. But after the novelty wears off, and then the road seems long and maybe monotonous, and so many stretches of it, of this road, are treacherous and dangerous. Many want to head for the nearest off-ramp, 
Because everyone is in a hurry. Everyone wants shortcuts. Instant gratification in an insta world. But frankly speaking, that is not the Christian life. Christianity isn't for tourists. It's for pilgrims. Disciples. In other words, the Christian life is, as author Eugene Peterson puts it, a long obedience in the same direction. That is what we see this morning as we return to our exposition through Exodus. Israel's been saved. They've been redeemed out of Egypt. They sing and rejoice in their deliverance. But while the Exodus is done, their journey is really just beginning. God is not done with them. He still wants to shape them. He wants to change them. He wants to train them. He wants to teach them. God is training his people, telling them, teaching them that life with him is a long obedience in the same direction. Now, it's been several weeks since we've been in Exodus, and it will be helpful for us to kind of refresh our memories of just exactly where we are so far in the book of Exodus. After 10 plagues, Pharaoh finally released the Israelites to go. Get up, get out of the land. But Pharaoh kind of has a little bit of uh, seller's remorse here. And he pursues after them. He wants to retake these Israelites. And with their backs against the Red Sea and nowhere to go, the people of God, they, what do they do? They complain to Moses and yet God delivers them. He parts the Red Sea to save Israel from their enemies in this marvelous act of redemption. And you'll recall from last time we were in Exodus in chapter 15 that the bulk of this chapter records for us the celebratory singing that took place on this eastern shore of the Red Sea. In the wake of God's mighty, redeeming, saving work, they rejoice, they sing. That's what people do when they are saved. Jubilant song. Now, Israel might have thought their difficulties were over. Next stop, where are we going? Canaan, the promised land. They're so ecstatic that perhaps they actually want to stay on this eastern seashore. You see in verse 21, Moses says, Moses had to, it says in verse 21, make Israel go out to, from the Red Sea, set out from the Red Sea. But God needed to show them that glory does not immediately follow salvation. He leads them into a wilderness full of difficulty and testing. Because it's one thing to sing praises to the deliverer. And it's quite another to live out that faith when the daily trials of life crop up. And the same is true for us. God's normal way of working is not grace to glory with nothing in between. It's a long obedience in the same direction. So this morning, from our passage, I want to be able to show you three lessons. Three lessons for the pilgrim. Three lessons for the Christian pilgrim. First, keep yourselves from grumbling. That's the first lesson. Keep yourselves from grumbling. When Moses calls Israel to set out from the Red Sea, they are led into this wilderness of Shur, the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula, a sparsely populated desert region. And if you know the rest of Exodus, 
you know that it wasn't ultimately Moses who led them to this wilderness of Shur. It was the Lord. Remember that a pillar of cloud and fire is accompanying Israel. Wherever it goes, they follow. The pillar and cloud will be seen at Mount Sinai. It goes all the way to the end of Exodus in chapter 40. So the pillar and cloud are constantly leading Israel. And verse 22 says that after three days, they're unable to find any water and water is starting to run low. They have to feed their livestock. People's canteens are starting to run out and they're parched with thirst. And then all of a sudden they say, a water source. They're excited. You can just imagine the column, the the people in the front telling everyone in the back, hey, water's up ahead. But as they get there, it's mara, the Hebrew word for bitter. The water, they scoop it up. It's dead water, undrinkable water. Perhaps they're mud volcanoes spewing out brackish water full of salt and sulfur. You can imagine their disappointment. So the people grumble against Moses and say, what shall we drink? Now, the people don't grumble directly against the Lord. Maybe they feel, ah, we're too spiritual for something like that. But we'll grumble against Moses. But don't be fooled. God is not fooled. After all, they've been following the pillar of cloud this whole time. They know perfectly well that it is God who has brought them to this location. So make no bones about it. When they grumble against Moses, they are grumbling against God. Later in chapter 16, it makes it very clear. They're grumbling. They're grumbling against the leaders. And the Lord answers. And it is said explicitly that they are grumbling against the Lord. But what's most remarkable, what's most stunning really about this moment isn't simply that the people are unhappy or that they're venting their spleen against Moses. What's so remarkable is that it takes place three days after God split the waters of the Red Sea. What's so remarkable is that while they're complaining, the pillar of cloud is right there in front of them. What's so remarkable is the kind of forgetfulness of God's past grace towards them that they're almost like Pharaoh. You remember Pharaoh? One plague. Oh, I changed my mind. Forget two plague. Oh, I changed my mind. Forget three Over and over and over again. It's stunning that the people of God who just saw God stack up the waters and they passed through the Red Sea, who just saw that God gave Pharaoh's army more water than they would ever want, now complain, grumble for lack of water. And I think we can say with confidence that this is the sin that all of us are guilty of. We are slow to listen. I'm with you. We are slow to listen, quick to grumble, aren't we? Oh, we'll kind of recast it in a kind of more palatable words. We'll say, oh, I was frustrated. Or, I was annoyed. But we're really grumbling. And we're ready to point fingers at a moment's notice. We are what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of people. Parents, many of you know this experience. You can spend lots of time and energy and perhaps even lots of money 
to go to a national park with the family. You get into the car and it's not three days, it's three minutes. And you hear, why do I have to sit here? I'm so hungry. What are we going to eat? There's nothing to do. Why did we ever come here? When are we going home? Grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. And parents, maybe the dad, will say, stop it. Stop complaining. We're having a fun time. Look out the window. We're making memories. And he's grumbling all the way too. Grace becomes grumbling so quickly in children, and grace becomes grumbling so quickly in us. Now, it's not as if Israel isn't facing a real difficulty. From human point of view, they're not like, oh, we really dislike our job. It's just not as fulfilling as we thought it would be. No, it's not that. They're not quibbling about non-essentials. They're not quibbling about luxuries that they're wishing that they had. Israel is facing a life and death situation. Just imagine being a mother there. Under the heat of the wilderness, you found no water for your children. You're exhausted. You're watching your children dehydrate before your eyes. And mothers in our, mothers in our nation right now are so anxious right now because they don't have formula for their children. That's maybe just a little bit of a glimpse of how they're feeling. Their spirits are broken because why? Life in the wilderness, even if it's just three days, makes you forget, doesn't it? Has that ever happened to you? When God deals with you very tangibly, he's helped you get through something that you thought you could never get through. Perhaps prayers were answered and then all of a sudden you find yourself back into the wilderness. And it seems to wipe your memory of God's grace. Some of you are being tested right now. Perhaps circumstances are drawing you away from the Lord. Perhaps something more tangible seems more tangible, more real, more satisfying than God's promises for you. Maybe you're going through a hard trial in your own body or in a trial or the trial of having a loved one going through a trial. Beloved, a groan is one thing, but a grumble is another. Now, the Bible is full of groaning. The psalm we just sung is full of groaning. Romans 8 says that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. A groan says to God, this is really hard. A grumble says to God, you are really hard. A groan says, God, I would like something different. A grumble says, God, I wish you were someone different. There are a lot of groans in the Bible, but grumbling is sin. Do you see why it's so serious? It's saying to God, I can't trust you. You don't do all things well. The way you are ordering things is not good. You are not good. You don't know what you're doing, God. You haven't thought it through. Church, it's not a sin to bring to God our problems. He invites us to prayer. What is a sin, however, is to have a complaining spirit. To implicitly reject God's provision. One author says, we grumble when neither past provision 
nor future promises have any bearing on our present pain. In other words, we've forgotten everything from the past. That, whatever God has done for us in the past, has no bearing right now on on what's happening right now. Everything in the future, all of God's promises for us, that he's going to work things out for our good, that he's going to bring us to completion in Christ, that he will never never leave us or forsake us. We forget our past. We forget the future. All we can focus on is the present. And it's incredibly human, and we all do it. And in those times, we must not forget the past. And we must always look to the promises of God that we might keep ourselves from grumbling. Second lesson for the Christian pilgrim, keep God's commands when tested. Not only are you to keep yourselves from grumbling, but you are to keep God's commands when tested. Look at the middle of verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. These verses really are the center, physically, like arranged, uh, written as the center, and also the theological weight of our passage this morning. It tells us why God brings Israel into the wilderness. The wilderness is to be Israel's teacher. Uh, Charles Spurgeon described it this way. He says, the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. And there they went to the university and he taught and trained them. And they took their degree before they entered into the promised land. Like most institutions of higher learning, Wilderness U has an examination system, doesn't it? God, it says, tests his people, Israel. At Mara, God is schooling them, teaching them, making himself known to them. And he tells Israel that their welfare will depend on their obedience to the voice of the Lord. Now, we are to misunderstand. There are a couple of misunderstandings that we can have about this passage. One is that somehow that these are requirements for their salvation. But remember that these are people that have already been saved. Remember where they are. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. It's not as if right now they're cornered with their backs up against the wall, Pharaoh's army is coming, and somehow God has uh, the pillar of flame keeping them at bay. And God says, hey, Israel, right now, if you will listen, if you will listen to my voice, if you will obey my commandments, keep my statutes, For 40 years, I'll keep the Egyptians at bay. And if you're good, then I'll let you cross the Red Sea. That's not what's happening here. That's not what God did, and that's not what God does. He saves them unilaterally by his sovereign grace and mercy. But now, he says, as a people saved out of Egypt, this is how you ought to live. Because genuine salvation, will always there will always be fruitful, joyful works that accompany it. God wants them to do more than simply believe what he has done. He wants them to obey what he has commanded. Now, test is such a, um, it's, it's a word that gives some of us shivers. 
You know, sometimes we dream about our tests, don't we? We wake up and we forget, oh, yeah, I didn't prepare for that test. It conjures up in our minds pop quizzes. But God is not a professor looking to fail us. Have you ever had one of those professors? He's not looking to fail us, looking to see when are, when are they going to get a wrong answer. Why do doctors run tests uh, at physicals? It's not to get you into trouble. It's to show you what's already there in the body. If the test set comes out and it says you're pre-diabetic, it's no use blaming the doctor. So it is with God. God tests our faith by sending us trials, and these trials do not create sin or unbelief. The sin or unbelief is already there in the heart. It's already there. Every trial God brings is a spiritual x-ray to us. It shows us and others what is in our hearts because testing reveals what sometimes prosperity can keep hidden. John Calvin points out that God might have given them sweet water to drink at first, but he wished by the bitter to make prominent the bitterness which lurked in their hearts. And don't misunderstand the promise in verse 26. God is not promising Israel universal health and ease. That if you obey, no one will ever, ever have anything difficult fall upon them. Or that they'll never get sick or die. It is specifically the absence of the plagues that came upon Egypt. God is not promising nothing bad will ever happen. But this is how the promise functions. God is saying, you're my people, trials will come, testing will come, and in that moment, the pilgrim path, which is a place of conflict, in that moment, listen to me. Obey my commandments. Don't veer off the path because my desire, what, is, is to bless, not to curse. God is saying, do you know that the safest place for you to be is walking in obedience to me? This is why when Moses cries out to the Lord and the Lord shows him a log and Moses throws it into the water, the water becomes sweet. Because I believe that what God is doing here is he is reintroducing to Israel the ten plagues that happened and fell upon Egypt. Think about that very first plague that fell upon Egypt. What was it like? The Nile was clean water. Moses takes his wooden staff, puts it in the water, and it becomes undrinkable. But here God is saying, look, you come tomorrow, the water is undrinkable. Throw a piece, put a stick in there, and the water will become drinkable. God is teaching them trials will come, but I will be your provider. Trust in me, obey in me, because that is good. I am the one who makes well. I am the healer. I, my goal is not to plague you. But to bless you, it is always more blessed to obey. So that's the lesson. Liberty is not meant to lead us to license. God's people are not to free, free to live their lives in any which way they choose. God, being for your soul, does not make him indifferent to your sin. Israelites were tempted to think that life for the people of God was, would mean immediate entrance into the promised land. It's going to be easy street from here on out. Straight from grace to glory. Instead, tri- instead, their triumph was followed by tribulation. And so it is with us. God 
does not call for shortcuts. The promised land can only be reached by way of wilderness. And the wilderness is a hard place. It is a place to meet with God, certainly. But it is barren. It is desolate. And the question here is, when that time comes, will you keep singing? It's one thing to sing on the banks of the Red Sea. Oh, the Lord is my strength and my song. I rejoice in him. But it's quite another when you're in the wilderness. Will you keep on singing? Will you keep on obeying? Will when the road becomes monotonous or when the road veers into the wilderness? Beloved, if you have been called by Christ, then you have been called to a long obedience in the same direction. First Peter tells us, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So don't let this lesson escape us. When the going gets tough, listen to God's word. Listen to God's voice. Keep Do what is right. Give ear to his commandments. Keep all his statutes. As a Christian pilgrim, keep yourself from grumbling. Keep, second, keep God's commands when tested. Third, and our last point this morning, keep hoping in God. Keep hoping in God. Look at verse 27. They came to Elim, and there were 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees. Elim, as you can see, is a place of rest. This is the palm springs of the Middle East. After the bittersweet experience at Mara, they move further into the wilderness where there are 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Now, are we to understand these 12 springs literally and these 70 palm trees literally? I don't see why not. We, we essentially take three days of journey to be a literal three days. Why not I'll take these numbers to be literal? I mean, if we remember Jesus' ministry, he took five loaves of bread, fed the 5,000, and afterwards, exactly 12 literal baskets remained. Why? To teach the disciples that Jesus will provide for them. And so it is here. Elim is a place of abundance. It is a place of God's grace matching Israel's needs precisely. God testifies to his people his perfect and absolute provision for his people. He says to them, I know how to take care of you. There will be times of testing, times of Mara, but I will also have an Elim prepared for you as well. I will give you water. God is gracious to send both seasons of adversity and prosperity. He takes you to Mara, a place of humbling, and he will take you to Elim. And we need both of those things. Victor Hamilton writes, dealing with nothing but Mara day after day would suck the life out of us. Dealing with nothing but Elim day after day would soften us and never stretch us. In other words, we need one to, for life to be sanctifying, and we need the other to make life bearable. 
Perhaps some of you this morning feel like your whole life is trapped at Mara. You feel like you've been in the wilderness a lot longer than three days and you sympathize with these Israelites who will be there for 40 years. But here's the reminder and the lesson. Hope, keep hoping in God. When your life is Mara, don't forget God because he hasn't forgotten you. After Mara will come Elim. Don't allow yourself to slide into hopelessness. We are not meant to be hopeless people. God promised here there will be Mara, but he does not want us to grieve as those who have no hope, but as those who know the resurrection of Christ. Do you trust Do you believe that God has a leam in store for you all hopefully soon, always later? Even more important than relief from the bitter waters of Mara in your life is the rest that all of us need from the bitterness of sin. The rest that we need from the bitterness of sin. That is the real danger, isn't it? Not that we have all our physical needs taken care of, but a resting place and a respite for our souls. We are all to one degree or another in this life, toiling at Mara, looking for Elim. Even on the best days, when things seem to be going our way and everything, everything on our list is being checked off and it's going smoothly, we always think just a little bit that there must be sweeter water somewhere else. Even with all the comforts and blessings, favor and joy in life, there is this restlessness. And I think God has wired you. God has created you to long for and look for that place. To not be satisfied at Mara, but long for an Elim that you didn't even know existed, where fulfillment can be found. Will you come to Elim? For some of you who have never, who don't know where Elim is. The abundant provision made for us that we might be healed, that we might flourish, is when God sent his son to be our savior. Think about Jesus who came up from the waters of his baptism. And where does he go? Directly into the wilderness to be tested, tempted to take a shortcut, to skip the pain, to get food his own way, to not trust the father to provide, but he trusted and he obeyed. And this soul-slaking righteousness of Christ can be yours if you will but come to him. Isaiah says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus says in John seven thirty seven, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So would you come? That's the call of God. The God who makes himself known. The God who shows us the Mara of our lives to show us that he himself is our Aileen. Everyone who comes to Jesus discovers that he is deeply satisfying in every way, and everyone can come to him. Jesus says in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, "Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. 
Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. No one needs to remain at Mara if they become to Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are all wise and good, just and fair. Yet how often, Lord, do we doubt your goodness and your graciousness in times of testing? Oh, Lord, we ask that you would equip us that when those times come, whether we're in it now or it's coming in the future, that we would listen to your voice that we would keep all your statutes, that we would press on in faithful obedience, demonstrating that the strength does not come from us, but comes from you, that you might receive all the glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name.